Welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with Luke Savage, welcome back everyone. I just want to say in advance that we're definitely going to get a, a new mic set up for the next episode. Uh, that's a pledge to you, the listeners. We're doing this special vintage episode for The Real Heads, where we throw back to the uh, audio quality with which the podcast began. Think of it as like listening to a scratchy old vinyl, something with a lot of presence, something that's been well-loved. Pretend that you got this recording out of like a crate at a flea market somewhere. Well, a few years ago, of course, Neil Young released that album, Alexa. Letter Home, I think it was called, where it was recorded in some kind of like old recording booth from the 1930s or something. And it, it sounded like it. Right. We sound like Robert Johnson or someone like that. <laughs> That's you know, right. an, old, an old strummer. <laughs> I don't have too much to discuss off the top, but I did want to bring up a tweet that I saw that went viral that I felt a certain malaise when I saw it. And uh, well, I'll just tell you what the tweet was. It said, John Oliver once used his show's budget to forgive $15 million in medical debt, which I think is mildly more beneficial to the cause than being able to recite all of leftist Twitter's talking points word for word. So what I want to say about this is, and I'm going to sound very hypocritical as a podcaster with a with a politics and culture podcast where we talk about the ideology of movies <laughs> like My Fellow Americans. <laughs> Ooh, foreshadowing. This tweet made me feel exhausted, and I thought <laughs> I've spent I've spent too much time over the last five years thinking about the politics of various late night talk show hosts. <laughs> And I think it's time to just like start thinking about late night talk show hosts again on terms of are they funny or not? Well, I think the problem with doing that is that if you're only thinking about the ones that are funny, you're not really going to be thinking about them much at all, are you? Isn't that great? You could just dismiss it much more easily and not have to get into these arguments about whether they're sufficiently socialist or not. <laughs> well, I don't think I understood the tweet initially, but you're telling me it's it's a defense of John Oliver in the face of like criticism, a perceived criticism that he's not like pure enough. Yeah, yeah. It's the way that some people might defend like, you know, non-voters or other people who don't have the socialist lexicon at their fingertips, but whose heart is ultimately in the right place and who can be brought over to our side. So the, the tone of it is like, you know, you rose emoji people sitting here criticizing John Oliver, but he's out in the trenches doing important stuff. Forgiving like, medical debt. Like riffing in a British accent about the news. And this is the stuff I just can't care anymore, even though I brought it up even you though say anymore i i mean i we got I, another 400 episodes of this podcast where i'm sure we'll talk about john oliver i never point. cared about this <laughs> i'm proud to say i was never one of those people who put a lot of stock in what was going on in late night shows well as my dear friend and mentor andrew breitbart always said politics <laughs> is downstream from culture and uh this is something i i care about greatly well speaking of dumb things from social media uh, there's an account i follow that i think is is interesting although perhaps not not in the way that uh, some people think, which is this Facebook top 10 uh, Twitter account, where basically every day it compiles the top 10 performing posts on Facebook. Number one is almost always Ben Shapiro. He usually charts, you know, at least a few times. And then in this case, uh, like about half of them, uh, this was today, are Occupy Democrats, which aside from Ben Shapiro is probably the worst account there is. For those unfamiliar with Occupy Democrats, which like, frankly, I hope you are, their thing is that they drive engagements by taking kind of the, the worst impulses of like, 
resistance lib Twitter. It's always a post like, uh, this Uber driver has a Trump bumper sticker. RT, if you will only give this Uber driver one star and never tip him. Yeah, now a lot of it is just like straight, just, you know, the worst kind of Unite Blue, like Dem Twitter kind of stuff. But, you know, their thing is that they, you know, they take that sort of model that came out of, well, I don't know if I want to even credit it by calling it a model, but, you know, basically with things like Upworthy, Rest in Power, things like that, people figured out that, you know, you can drive engagements with a sort of like action item, which gives people like the sense that they're like participating by boosting the engagements of uh, such and such an account. And, you know, so various like tricks were adopted quickly. Like you put things in, in all caps, you put breaking at the beginning of the tweet as if you know, you're reporting something, etc. Anyone who spent time online will be familiar with this stuff. But Occupy Democrats is great because it takes this further than anybody has ever taken it. Notably through posts like this one from a few months ago where they tweeted, breaking, a large Florida landlord announces that he will begin requiring all new and existing tenants to provide proof of COVID vaccination saying, you don't want to get vaccinated, you have to move. And if you don't, we will evict you. All caps, retweet if you support the landlord's move. <laughs> now, what's so great about that? Oh, God, there's so much to love about this tweet. I like that they specify that it's a large landlord. They're not even like doing that pretend thing where, you know, that a lot of like landlord propaganda does where, it, you know. It's somebody who's has a heavy mortgage and they are deeply in debt. And so they've rented out their basement and are just trying to make a little bit yeah, which, by the way, almost never happens. Like, this is a thing that, like, the landlord lobby sort of invented, you know, the idea that, oh, landlordism is actually, in a lot of cases, it's a mom and pop thing. And it's just people, you know, with a few properties, you know, just trying to make an extra income. And, you know, if you're cracking down on these these people, you're pretty much, it's pretty much an attack on the working class, <laughs> folks. But this is so great. Like, this is just, like, Unite Blue Twitter coming out the other side, where it's like, retweet if you support landlords evicting people. <laughs> I love it. Uh, but anyway, Occupy Democrats had four or five of the top 10 performing Facebook posts in the last 24 hours. Now, usually tweets from this Facebook top 10 account are accompanied by, you know, some version of the same comment, um, which is usually, you know, especially since Ben Shapiro is almost always number one or two. And then, you know, in this case, you got Fox News is number five. Heavy representation of right wing media in these things. People always do, you know, some version of the comment where they go like, oh, tell me again about the liberal media or something like that. <laughs> I do understand the spirit of that comment. I mean, you know, today's a bad example since, you know, like half of them are just Occupy Democrats tweets. Number two is something called the Pioneer Woman Re Drummond, and I confess I don't know what that is. But I actually think that uh, the main takeaway from all of these things is just that, like, Facebook is dominated by older demographics now. Like, that's kind of what I get from all this stuff. First of all, when was the last time I ask you, uh, my co-host, and you, the listeners, that you shared a post on Facebook? And by that, I mean, you know, not that you posted something, but that you saw, like, a news item or something, or you saw, like, a meme, and you just hit the share button. I don't think I've done that for years. Yeah, it's it's been years. I feel like there's a lot of people I know who used to be really active on Facebook, and they don't even go on there anymore. I only go on there to announce the deaths of relatives. <laughs> That's kind of its only function for me right now. <laughs> One thing I see all the time now when I go on there, you know, in addition to, you know, people sharing, like, in my case, it's never Ben Shapiro. It's it's always like the lib equivalent of that kind of thing. It's always, you know, yeah, Occupy Democrats or whatever. For years, it was just news articles about like Trump and Russia, like Mother Jones memes about Trump and Russia, that kind of thing. But what I see now is just YouTube links with no context where it's just like a full episode of a TV show. And I'm like, do you even know that you're posting this? What is the purpose of this? Yeah. Yeah, Facebook has changed a lot since, you know, when 2000 
2006, 2007, when for our generation, you know, it, it, it replaced MSN Messenger. And then, you know, since has been replaced itself many times over by social media platforms where you're required to have even less of an attention span. It's amazing that my Facebook page essentially functions as a time capsule of my last year of high school and my first years of university. I mean, that's that's basically what it is. I can go and visit my old self. I can see pictures of me at my prom. Pictures of you being valedictorian, which have we ever told that story on the show? I, I was valedictorian, yes. <laughs> I, I won the popularity contest, folks. And if, if you're a listener to this show, I'm sure you can understand why. It's a, it's a misleading story, though, because uh, they actually had some kind of like ranked ballot system. And I believe you became the sort of compromise candidate and came up the middle. Uh, no, it was not a ranked balloting <laughs> system. But I, I was a compromise candidate because I was probably liked by the most number of people at the school. Uh, I, I was nobody's favorite person, but I was a lot of people's favorite person on that ballot. <laughs> well, it's funny to think they had a version of Clegg Mania at your high school and that you were the, the beneficiary and took things further than uh, Mr. Clegg himself. Well, I'm never sure how to transition out of our silly banter at the beginning. But I did do an interview recently that I want to talk a little bit about here. If you're not a subscriber to our Patreon, uh, I put a lot of interviews that I do uh, at Jacobin on there. And this one will be up there in the next few days. I haven't been writing a huge amount about Ukraine, but I did this interview recently with Benjamin Tietelbaum, who's a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder and the author of a really interesting book called War for Eternity, The Return of Traditionalism and the Rise of the Populist Right. So in this book, Tietelbaum discusses these kind of far-right gurus, these sort of Rasputins of various far and hard-right governments from, uh, you know, Steve Bannon and his relationship with Trumpism. There's a guy called Olavo de Carvalho, who's, uh, who died recently and was sort of the house intellectual for, for Bolsonaro. And then there's the figure that, uh, in this case, I was most interested in Alexander Dugin uh, in Russia. Now, one of the things that I've always found most interesting about right-wing politics is the particular way in which often very eccentric intellectuals, and you know, I use the term loosely, obviously, people connected to these very obscure sects of kind of right-wing thinking can end up somehow exercising tremendous influence on kind of mainstream national politics and, and global politics more generally. I think this is something you see in the conservative movement in general. If you've listened to the Know Your Enemy podcast, they did a really excellent episode on what I believe was called the 1776 Project or something like that. I remember, I may be getting the number wrong, but this was sort of the, you know, in the dying days of the Trump presidency, the sort of Trumpist response to the 1619 Project. (laughs) And it turns out that one of the principal influences on this is the school of West Coast Straussianism and something called, if I'm getting my right-wing institutes right, the Claremont Institute. And if you go through the footnotes of this uh, this absurd report that the Trump administration published in its final days, you find all these citations which reference this very obscure, almost, you know, intellectual sect within a sect. So it's very interesting to think about kind of that nexus between popular right-wing politics and sort of the obscure intellectual currents that often undergird it. And it can often be very difficult to tell what the precise relationship is. And one of the things that was really interesting about uh, my conversation with Ben was that, you know, he's an expert on this stuff and he actually finds this a very fraught question. So 
Alexander Dugan, who's this guy's career sort of roughly coincides with the, you know, fall of the USSR and kind of the rise of Putinism. You know, he's often called the, the house intellectual of Putinism, or that's often how he's uh, thought of. But at times, it seemed like he's a very marginal and irrelevant figure and a bit of a crank. And then at other times, he'll pop up and he'll be representing Russia in some kind of diplomatic post. He's undergone a certain kind of ideological evolution. In the 90s, he tried to set up some kind of extremely bizarre and sinister uh, national Bolshevik party, which was going to attempt to be a sort of fusion of the politics, as far as I can tell, of the politics of the Third Reich and sort of the idioms of Bolshevism. He's since become associated with and, and become one of the lead intellectuals of this traditionalist school. Now, this is a kind of spiritual and, and religious way of thinking, almost a kind of mysticism at times, uh, in some ways more than it's a political ideology, or that's how it was explained to me by Benjamin Tietelbaum. But this school really takes, you know, reaction further than we're used to. I mean, it's a way of thinking that really abandons a lot of the sort of core beliefs associated with modernity that are even kind of still channeled in one way or another by a lot of more mainstream uh, kind of reactionary thinking. So one of the things the traditionalists believe is that time is cyclical rather than linear. There's not really a, a trajectory of progress. There's merely a sort of golden age in which capital T tradition exists. And then there's just a steady degeneration generation from there in which things become more democratic and thus more kind of base. Things become less hierarchical in the golden age, of course. Things are very hierarchical. There's a caste system. Uh, and then at a certain point, uh, once things have kind of degenerated as much as they can, there's kind of a restoration or return. And in the past, this has come in the form of like the Second World War, for example. Well, it's a lot further back than that. Mm -hmm. I mean, so we're, we're reaching back into the, you know, the mists of time. I mean, it's again, it's, it's it can be difficult to tell with this stuff. A lot of it's very uh, kind of hazy and, and, and mystical. But I mean, I think we're really talking about going back into a past that's that's mythical and in some ways predates historical time. Now, in the case of Dugan, in many ways, his traditionalist thinking is also associated with a kind of Russian ultranationalism. So, uh, you know, a, a particular idea about uh, Russia's role in the world one of the things that's paradoxical about the whole global traditionalist movement is that, you know, you have these different figures, these reactionary figures who are all ultra-nationalists, are all kind of fascinated with this traditionalist philosophy. But of course, depending on where they're situated, have kind of a completely different story that they're telling. So Tietelbaum told me about a meeting that took place in Rome, I believe in 2018, between Steve Bannon and Alexander Dugan. And of course, they, they were unable to leave the meeting uh, with any kind of agreement, because for Dugan, you know, he's somebody who believes that liberal cosmopolitanism, you know, is the problem. And that's most associated with the United States. So for him, you know, the United States is the great Satan. And, you know, Russia can be this force for conservatism and traditionalism the world over, can be kind of the vanguard of those things. But of course, for Bannon, the problem is China. And so, you know, depending on where these thinkers are situated, you know, they can all be ultra-nationalists and they can even have very similar ideas and, you know, similar commitment to hierarchy and things like that. But because, you know, they're partaking in, in what at least can tend to be these grand theories of human civilization, they're going to have very different ideas about, you know, who the protagonists of human civilization are. Just one of the many contradictions in this line of thinking. 
Anyway, I talked a lot with Benjamin Tiedelbaum about Dugan and about traditionalism and specifically about their influence in events unfolding today. One last thing I'll say that I found uh, particularly interesting was that I was curious, you know, given the, the perception and it seems increasingly the, the reality that the Russian invasion of Ukraine is not going as many anticipated. It's not following kind of the template that Russian military planners set. So I was curious to ask, you know, this expert on Alexander Dugan, I mean, how is he reacting to this? How are the how are, you know, Russian ultranationalists reacting to this? And interestingly, he told me, well, actually, Dugan and people like him love the sanctions because the sanctions are getting McDonald's and other symbols of kind of Western <laughs> decadence, you know, out of Moscow. And so it sounds like even in the case that there is a Russian military defeat, in some ways, Russian ultranationalists are going to have regarded, you know, the severing of the country, at least partial severing of certain cultural and economic links uh, with the West as a major victory. Anyway, we'll have that full interview up at patreon.com slash Michael and us in the next few days. Jack Lemon is ex-president Kramer. James Garner is ex-president Douglas. I can't believe I just did it with Matt Douglas. My mother has a commemorative plate with your face on it. Apparently, I'm dishwasher safe. Dan Aykroyd is current president Haney. Not so fast, Carl. Slow down. I don't like people running faster than I do. It makes me look pokey. Kramer and Douglas always ran against each other. Let's talk about popularity. There was only one assassination attempt on me. You had three. Two. The woman in Phoenix doesn't count. She only had a starter pistol. Stop. But now... Mr. President, I'm afraid a situation's come up. Here it is. They've discovered a cover-up. We've had that buried for years. Of presidential proportions. Well, taking the conversation down several pegs, our movie on this episode is 1996's My Fellow Americans, starring Jack Lemmon, James Garner, and Dan Aykroyd. A couple weeks ago, we put out a call on our Patreon, you know, give us suggestions of what's some sort of centrist 90s kitsch we should watch. Every every so often, you know, particularly after, you know, last week we did Solaris, you know, Will and I decide that we're actually itching to sort of go back to our roots and discover, you know, another great Michael and us film, you know, something to, to rival, you know, in terms of kitsch, incoherence, etc. Uh, you know, great films like Man of the Year, Swing Vote, any of the great sort of politics, what a concept movies we've discovered for this podcast. We did put out this call and I have to say, it seemed like a good idea at the time. It did not <laughs> seem like a good idea after uh, you and I suffered through this movie. And I just want to say on the Wikipedia page, under the plot tab for the movie, there's a note that says, this article's plot summary may be too long or excessively detailed. Please help improve it by removing unnecessary details and making it more concise. I agree. We should start by maybe burning the negative of the film <laughs> and getting rid of all surviving VHS and DVD copies and make things more concise. This is, and, you know, I don't say this as much these days because we've partly transitioned to watching, you know, Tarkovsky and such. This is one of the worst films we've ever watched for the podcast. This is one of those films where halfway through I start to get a pit in my stomach because I'm worried that we're not going to have have anything to discuss, I start trying to reassure myself that, oh, you've been here before, and you just, you discuss the absence, you discuss the void, then you get another 20 minutes into the movie, and that feeling doesn't exactly depart, and you start questioning the axioms by which you live your life, and wondering if you deserve to have a podcast that thousands of people listen to. Movies like this, movies like Speechless, at this point, we're basically just waiting for the part two-thirds of the way in where the Republican and the Democrat say, you know what, we have we have more in common than we think we do, and maybe that's what makes America great. We're just waiting for that scene, and then we're like, 
Great. That's five minutes of content right there. There it is. There is life after partisanship, folks. Now we can all sleep tonight. The problem is that, you know, this film does indeed have that, and we never doubted it for a second once we read the capsule summaries. The problem is that this film adds this extremely convoluted plot with a ton of different characters, this weird sort of plot about uh, forces associated with the new uh, incumbent president played by Dan Aykroyd to somehow frame two ex-presidents, one a Republican, one a Democrat. And despite suffering through all 101 minutes of this and then reading the too long and not concise enough plot summary on Wikipedia, I'm still not entirely sure that I understand that aspect of the plot. Doesn't matter. This is something that would have made me anxious doing this podcast like five years ago. But now, <laughs> now I don't care. I mean, what people need to know is this is a studio comedy from 1996. It's got all the comedy stuff in it. It's directed by a master of the form, Peter Siegel, whose credits include Tommy Boy, The Nutty Professor 2, The Clumps, and Anger Management. So we're in good hands, is what you're saying. <laughs> Just smooth craftsmanship from a professional. <laughs> a man with a master's degree in banality has directed this film. <laughs> this movie is obviously inspired by the film Grumpy Old Men starring Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. It's uh, one of those geezer exploitation comedies that was coming out in the 90s, uh, many of which starred Lemmon and Matthau. Matthau was originally slated to be in this movie but dropped out and was replaced by James Garner. But otherwise, like Grumpy Old Men, it is a movie where two veteran stars lob insults and quips at each other and in this one they happen to be former presidents but i mean they could be plumbers they could be garbage men they could be anything that's what's amazing about this if you stripped away all the politics stuff i mean the movie is laying on the politics stuff really thick it's like right at the beginning right at the end i think somewhere in the middle you know there are various shots of rallies there's a lot of stuff in the oval office a lot of that sort of political uh, mise-en-scene but the movie is so formulaic and so kind of apolitical you could just strip all that away if you just removed the kind of implicit thesis which is that you know partisanship can be transcended or whatever the fuck you could just insert any kind of similarly banal morality tale into it and it would work just as well this could be you know Two guys that at different points were CEOs of the same company. Before getting to the plot, I just want to tell you a little bit more about some of the talent behind the film. It's produced by John Peters, who folks will know was played by Bradley Cooper in Licorice Pizza, the producer of such films as Batman and Wild Wild West. The cast includes, in addition to the three above the title stars, uh, it's an absurdly overqualified cast that includes John Hurd, the dad from Home Alone and a star of Chilly Scenes of Winter, Wilford Brimley, Everett McGill, Bradley Whitford, your favorite, Bradley <laughs> Whitford's in this, and... I swear to God, Lauren Bacall is in this movie in the thankless role of Jack Lemmon's wife. She does almost nothing. She's at the beginning. She's at the end. She gives a few reaction shots. I felt bad seeing her in this. It really goes to show that at a certain age, you know, the offers do dry up, don't they? Well, I think she might have gotten an honorary one, but Lauren Bacall never actually won an Oscar in her lifetime, as far as I know. So I guess this was just like a final kick at the can to win in the coveted best airplane movie category. <laughs> 
So the two protagonists are a couple of one-term presidents. There is the Republican, Jack Lemon. I'm not going to get the names of these characters. Doesn't Russell doesn't, Kramer of Ohio. Uh, Again, doesn't matter. Whatever. Could be any- Republican Jack Lemon, uh, he beat Democrat James Garner in an election. But then four years later, Democrat James Garner beat him in a landslide. And then four years after that, Jack Lemon's former vice president, Dan Aykroyd, beat Garner. So now Lemon and Garner are two grumpy old ex-presidents. They're on the ex-president circuit. And one thing I did kind of enjoy about this movie is it is a time capsule of a different era of what an ex-president was. Like as the film opens, Jack Lemon is like doing a speech at a convention or something. And he's like, it's like an insurance company or something. And he's like, it's like degrading gigs, basically. And he he writes books that no one reads. They're basically like D-list celebrities after their presidents. And they are what Gerald Ford was, basically. (laughs) And this is before like Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama really turned being an ex-president into a multi-million dollar business. I think, unless I'm much mistaken, I think it was George H.W. Bush who, who was kind of, you know, the architect or one of the architects of, you know, the really lucrative post-presidency where you just, you just totally sell out. You go on the speaking circuit, you make a ton of money. Harry Truman, I think it was, famously insisted on being listed in the phone directory and refused to serve on corporate boards after, even though he was offered them. Whereas with Barack Obama, like life begins on the (laughs) minute you fly off that tarmac. Barack Obama getting to his post-presidency allowed him to achieve what he'd always craved more than anything, which was to be an entirely post-political figure. In many ways, he tried to have a kind of pastoral presidency, you know, one where the country was just an ecosystem and his job was to kind of maintain it. And, you know, in that spirit, he sacrificed a lot of the legislative agenda that initially got people excited about him in the first place uh, just to try to get like Mitch McConnell's signature on it or whatever. But no longer being president anymore allowed him to get uh, incredibly rich, which, you know, he wasn't at least by the standards of a lot of U.S. politicians when he became president. And then, yeah, hang out with celebrities and just be like a guy that releases like lists telling you what top 40 music you should listen into, you know, with with the odd track from like Miles Davis or John Coltrane uh, thrown in so that there's like a whiff of sophistication. Yeah, the two ex-presidents in this movie, there's a running theme that they were both sort of failures, that they didn't get anything done. You know, they have they have like Jimmy Carter, George H.W. Bush stink on them in this film. But now that doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter if you got anything done. What, what matters is uh, the brand. Well, and it turns out, as George Bush teaches us, that it also doesn't matter how absurdly unpopular you were when you left office, because there are a whole bunch of people waiting to rehabilitate you at the first opportunity. In his case, most of them liberals give me a sip oh yeah i'm about to share my coffee with the washington love machine no dice you could spit in a petri dish and start a whole new civilization here you want to lick the lid screw you Uh, give me that Okay, now I'm going to read directly from the Wikipedia page for a little bit. Uh, that's what they taught us to do at podcaster school. Uh, but I do want to get through the thicket, the tangled web of the film's plot. Ugh. Meanwhile, the Democratic Party learns about Olympia, the code name for a series of bribes from defense contractor Charlie Reynolds, played by James Rebhorn, paid to Haney, that's the Dan Aykroyd president character, paid to Haney when he was vice president. The DNC chairman asks Douglas... 
that is James Garner, to investigate. And in exchange for this, uh, the DNC chairman says to James Garner, if you investigate this, we'll get behind you if you want to run again in four years. (laughs) I love the idea that this like unsuccessful one term president, that there's ever a situation where a major party would say, yeah, hey, you can run again. I don't think you get to do that unless you're Donald Trump. Okay, but meanwhile, the sinister president Dan Aykroyd is teaming up with Bradley Whitford, his chief of staff, to frame former Republican president Jack Lemmon of this scandal. And shenanigans ensue. What you essentially need to know is that the two ex-presidents find themselves like on a plane together. And it's like, oh, no, not this guy. And they do like 10 minutes of vaudeville shit. Just the worst, uh, the worst banter. Um, and then, sorry, I watched this yesterday and I'm already forgetting what the fuck happened in it. <laughs> how do, how do they get in like the middle of nowhere? There's a really weird, uh, convoluted part of the plot where one of them goes to get in a cab and then his driver, when he's not looking, just gets shot like through the window. That's right. And then he finds out about this in the most amusing way possible. The other guy, you know, he's kind of like, what? What? And then he gets out of the car and then the other guy walks up and he's like, what are you doing here, you old fool? And it's like, you don't get it. Blah, 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 blah. There's a dead man. Yeah, that's that's pretty much what that's pretty much the scene. And then they yeah, they just walk away. These two ex-presidents in the middle of like downtown D.C., as there's a bullet hole through the window, a bloodstained bullet hole, they end up going to, you know, uh, one of their respective residents together, you know, just kind of bantering back and forth. Some kind of NSA agent or something comes and tells them that the president uh, wants them to come meet him at Camp David to discuss a highly secret matter. They're on a helicopter. They realize the president is actually still in Washington. There's no way that he's meeting them at Camp David. In a plot device, uh, I can't even begin to pretend to understand. One of them has had a son or grandson that uh, has appeared in the previous scene who's just handed them a handgun for some reason. They still have the handgun when they're on the helicopter. They tell the pilots, uh, stop or I'll blow your brains out. They get out. Uh, As the helicopter's flying away, it blows up. It's been sabotaged. And uh, they don't know where they are. And then most of act two of the movie, which this is a very act two heavy movie. There's not a lot in act one or act three. It's mostly just act two. This is sort of most of the rest of the movie is them just kind of like wandering around in middle America, you know, doing hijinks and having little adventures. Yeah, the movie basically becomes midnight run from here. There is a scene where like they're on a train and they have to jump from a moving train. Uh, They get picked up by a a simple folk couple (laughs) and they have to sleep in a bed with them. and it's like Jack Lemon finds himself being cuddled by a man when he's asleep. There's okay. There's a scene that I particularly like. They're evading the bad guys, and they end up in a pride parade. And this is uh, very embarrassing for the two ex-presidents. Yeah, it's, it's like an example of the kind of like soft homophobia that used to just be like par for the course in, in mainstream movies. In the end, the gay people help them. Yeah, there's like some burly bikers or something that like help them get to the next town or whatever. But the comedy in the in the scene is still generated from like, wouldn't that be embarrassing if two ex-presidents ended up in a pride parade? As for the politics of the film, I, I think one of the key scenes, you know, you, you we're masters of the craft. We're really looking out. Sometimes we'll be like looking at our phones, but then we'll be like, oh, here's the politics scene. Better pay attention to this. 
that doesn't happen. We watch these movies in full immersion. Will is not being honest there. Yeah, there's a section of the movie where the two ex-presidents are, they've been picked up by this, this couple, this working class family who are basically living in their trailer. First, the family is very nice to them, but then they say words that make them unhappy. And then the family kicks them out of their car. And the woman says, you know, you two, you don't understand the world that we're that we're living in. It was because of your economic downturn, President Jack Lemon, that <laughs> we lost our jobs. It was it was because of your whatever it was, President James Garner, that we don't have a factory in our town anymore. <laughs> You've ignored the voice of the people. Oh, the voice of the people. There is no such thing. You got 240 million voices all yelling for something different. The only thing you all seem to agree on is you don't want higher taxes. The voice of the people, my friend. Pull over, Wayne. And I want you to think about that. And they drive away, leaving the two ex-presidents alone in town to actually face the legacy of some of their decisions. I, I guess that's the point of the scene, but I think if there's a politics to this movie, a lot of it is sort of about how we don't revere ex-presidents enough and mm. they should get more respect. And I actually kind of think, like, the film wants us to like these guys. That's true. Well, it, it, they're also just symbolic of the elderly in general. Like, we're too quick to uh, cast them aside. But because they're ex-presidents, I mean, the satire doesn't really work on any level. I mean, there's also that scene where they end up on a train with like an Elvis impersonator. And then so people think that they're impersonators of themselves. And then so all the rubes on the train are talking to them. Like, talking shit. Yeah, talking shit, talking about what clowns they are and that kind of stuff. And, and again, I kind of think the point here, if there is one, is that we're supposed to sort of be sympathetic to them. I mean, obviously it's it's supposed to be funny, which like it's not. But I don't think this is a movie that's trying to do like snobs versus slobs and sort of side with the latter like it's if there is a point to this it's kind of like you know that uh, we don't we don't revere ex-presidents enough we make them do all these degrading books which no one buys and you know uh, insurance industry luncheon speeches that they get paid for and stuff like that okay everything you say is true but what i'll also say about that one scene is this is a movie where every element is in its place this is a machine tooled entertainment every scene you expect to be in it will be in it so like <laughs> When act two starts and the boys are on the road, they're going on their adventure. The movie is playing going on adventure music. <laughs> when it's the end of act two music, when when we're supposed to know the climax is coming, we're getting climax is coming music. And there has to be a scene in a movie like this where we think, you know what? Maybe these guys need to learn a lesson too. <laughs> but so, you know, using our patented method, the patent Michael and us way of finding ideology, even in films that have absolutely nothing going on in them, <laughs> you got to look into the void and, you know, the, and, and interpret the void. And the void in this movie, the structuring absence in my fellow Americans, <laughs> is the fact that, you know, the whole plot hinges on, you know, these two guys not liking each other. They're from different parties. They're constantly kind of making jokes at each other's expense. But there is not a single political disagreement that emerges between them throughout the entire movie. It is Which is too bad, because I would have liked a scene where the Republican Jack Lemmon says, let, let me tell you something. If we'd let Strom Thurmond be president 40 years ago, this country would be in a better place than it was, Buster. <laughs> I mean, the sole point that I noticed where anything even approaching ideology emerges is right before the helicopter blows up. 
and one of them is suggesting, oh, we should call the helicopter back and, you know, use the fact they have a handgun to just make it go to Camp David or make it, make it, make them take us to Washington so that we can demand to see the president. And, and then he says, very typical, the Republican comes up with a plan and the Democrat just follows or something like that. That reminds me of that scene at the beginning of Speechless two weeks ago where like Michael Keaton says, wow, I'd rather have him than some tax and spend liberal. And that's the one bit of yeah. ide ideological difference that the movie identifies. <laughs> see, see, this is a movie where everything is in its place. Like they know you've got to have one scene that indicates that there is a difference ideologically between Democrats and Republicans, but only one scene. And it has to be, it has to be something that is not too offensive to anyone. You can't be talking about abortion. <laughs> yeah, like it's not even an ideological disagreement. It's just like pure like partisanship. It's like, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a Republican. We get things done. Democrats don't or vice versa, whatever it is. As you say, everything in its right place. Uh, let me tell you, welfare mothers are just having kids so that they can get more welfare, James Garner. But it doesn't even have that. It should, though. I would like to see something like that. I'd like to see some energy in this movie's veins. The problem with that is that uh, it would ruin the end of the movie, which I, I predicted about 10 minutes before it happened. As Act 3 was kind of winding down, and you know, they've, they've somehow exposed uh, the evil Bradley Whitford character who's kind of trying to do a version of uh, what the Bradley Whitford character in Billy Madison does, but to the to the presidency. So yeah, they've exposed him. They've exposed President Dan Aykroyd as well. Then Vice President John Hurd, who's very obviously based on Dan Quayle, becomes president. But he was in on the corruption too. And there's a bit where Garner and Lemon are like walking out of the White House like, yep, then I guess he can't beat City Hall after all. <laughs> but then at the end, they do beat City Hall because nine months later, John Hurd goes to prison too which I thought was a real cop-out. I don't know. that the, Don't tease me with nihilism and then don't deliver it. But then finally... Well, so <laughs> I, I called it right as I was happening. I said the end is going to be that they... They, they run as a joint ticket or something. And then that's of exactly what okay, happens. Okay, this is beat for beat. This <laughs> follows the same beats as Speechless does. Because you remember at the end of Speechless, the two of them get together. They team up. He runs her campaign. Right, right. A, a, a died-in-the-wool Republican speechwriter runs a Democrat's campaign. As, anyway, this isn't a podcast about Speechless. It's about my fellow Americans. Well, I mean, it is a podcast about Speechless because there it's all a podcast about Speechless. <laughs> It's just the same movie. <laughs> there's there's just one text here with endless variations. Important detail about the end in this movie is that they actually run as a joint ticket, but as independents. So the ultimate sort of post-partisan message of the movie, it's not just we can transcend partisanship and have a Democrat and Republican run together. We can actually transcend the need for these labels at all because uh, these guys don't actually disagree about anything. Except for in the very hilarious final scene where they're up at the podium they're about to announce their campaign and it's now remember I'm running as president and you're running as vice president oh I know I'm running as president you're running and you know shenanigans ensue now again we're looking into the void trying to uh, squeeze politics out of a stone here I want to try to situate this movie in the Clinton era the movie positions Garner and Lemon as different kinds of ex-presidents first of all they're like of the greatest generation they're kind of like of Eisenhower's generation and even though the James Garner character has some like Clinton-esque tendencies, he's like a womanizer. That's his main thing. But otherwise, he's a pre-Clinton president. Now, the Dan Aykroyd character 
is a Clinton era president. He's slick willy. He's corrupt. And I feel like this movie is possible because there was this like sudden new perception uh, that there was there was hovering around in the 90s like, oh, a man like this, a man like this kind of slick and dishonest can become president. Uh, Unlike all those other honest presidents like Ronald Reagan, <laughs> uh, the, Nixon. <laughs> don't shoot the messenger. I'm trying to figure out what this movie's thinking. Well, I mean, the, the, the sort of time frame of the movie and where to situate its events in chronological terms doesn't make any sense because in the world of the movie, Ronald Reagan exists. I think George H.W. Bush also exists. He does. Ford exists. Carter exists. Carter exists. But so Bill Clinton's not mentioned, but then it, so you think, okay, well, the movie came out in 1996. You know, it's just, this is just, we're replacing the Clinton presidency. But then you think, well, wait, that doesn't make sense because we're supposed to believe that each of these guys has had one term in the lead up to this Dan Aykroyd character. Anyway, I don't want to be pedantic and, and ruin what is otherwise a, a masterpiece of a movie. Uh, anyway, just getting back to my earlier point, I would say that the movie the movie is saying that politics has never been perfect. The men that we elect have never been perfect. They're, they're quipping. They're doing insults. They're uh, be, doing shenanigans. Garner's a womanizer. But we used to have a different breed of politician. We had... We had great men like Dwight D. Eisenhower, and now we've got a new kind of politician, and it's time to to reclaim uh, America. Yeah, the old guys had class. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the message of this film. I have to say, though, I think it's pretty inaccurate to suggest that ex-presidents, like, I mean, I guess in this case, there's supposed to be a rivalry between them because, like, they, you know, beat each other in, in elections or whatever, and so they don't like each other for that reason. But most of these guys get along pretty well. I mean, I can't help think about the passage in A Promised Land, Barack Obama's memoir, where he talks about, you know, how upset he was that when Bush's motorcade, I guess, was leaving the White House for the last time on his last day in office, it was met with anti-war protesters and mm -hmm. stuff. And Obama's not on this. Obama, who got, by the way, got elected largely as a repudiation to Bush's entire presidency and on the strength of the anti-war movement and anti-war sentiment in general, he's not on the side of the anti-war protesters. He's upset as he's about to enter the office himself that these people would like be so disrespectful to their president who was a great public servant. I'm pretty sure the only ex-president who do, you know doesn't get invited to the ex-president's club is Jimmy Carter because he's the only one of them not you know living who hasn't used his post-presidency to just get like as fabulously rich as possible and who has a foundation that as I understand it actually does uh, some real charity work. I mean it's not enough for these guys that in many ways Carter's presidency sucked as much as just like all of theirs did, but it seems like they're offended that afterwards he he made like at least some effort to try to be a good person. That's the real problem. <laughs> Problem. <laughs> we are a mediocre president. You won't find our faces on dollars or on cents. There's Taylor, there's Tyler, there's Fillmore, and there's Hayes. There's William Henry Harrison. I died in 30 days. We are the adequate, forgettable, occasionally Thank you.